You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's just it's living in it as opposed to putting uh, your spin on it commenting on it, imposing on it. David Mamet says, let the script do the work. You have the fun. So if we just rely on the lines, what the words were supposed to say, it will do its job. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Justin Belguarini, an entertainment industry insider and veteran. And I have been operating on a national level as well as an international level for about 20 years now in Broadway, film, television, hosting, commercials, you name it. I have most likely done it or been around it. And I created this podcast called Audition Secrets, the podcast, so that you could have a direct link to the wisdom and insight that I've gained over those past 20 years, but also the stories, the heartbreaks, the victories, and everything else in between of some of your most favorite and cherished people in the entertainment industry. I'm so lucky that I have access to some of the one-name folks, to some of the legends, as well as you, my people, my fellow hardworking entertainers, actors, performers. This is not all about me. Just uh, wanted to invite on some really cool friends of mine and share some really great stories. I want you to be able to take bits and pieces of the show, wisdom that you hear, behind the scenes things that we talk about, and I want you to use them to help you nail more auditions and book more jobs. I want you to ask me questions because I love to teach. I love to serve and I want you to be able to take this podcast and to use it to help you get further in your career and to reach more of your goals. We got a great show for you today. So kick back, relax and enjoy the show. I can totally hear you. Hi. Hi, Justin. How are you? I'm doing so very well. So how are you? How was your uh, show in Philly? Oh, I had a ball. Yeah? Great time. Yeah, we had a great time. It was a great audience. And it was uh, 16 members of the um, gay men's choir that sang with me, the Brotherly Love. And it was a wonderful audience. It was really a very supportive and wonderful audience. That's good. That's good. I'm really glad to hear it. I'm sorry I missed it, but I'm glad that we're doing this. And I just got to say, just from the beginning, can you believe it was nine years ago that we worked together in Women on the Verge? And despite an all-star cast on the show, 
it wasn't actually a commercial success. It closed early. It was relatively ignored at the Tonys that year, despite nominations, including one for you in the best female actor in a musical category. And while it's super easy to point to all the success you've had, how do you deal with the heartache of putting your everything into a project that just just doesn't land with the audiences or critics? Well, that happened again on Warpaint, yeah. uh, where it just didn't catch fire. Just like Women on the Verge didn't catch fire. It didn't have the same publicity behind it. I think everybody was anticipating Women on the Verge because of Pedro Modovar and the subject matter and Bart, Lincoln Center Theater. Um, that was a big disappointment. Uh, Women on the um, Warpaint was a big disappointment. What do you do? You can't do anything. You can just sort of chalk it up to another flop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you really, you can't do anything, but you know, it's like we put our everything. It's like, you can't do everything, even though we put our everything into every show. And I know you for sure certainly do that. I don't know anybody who doesn't at, at this level anyway, but it's like you're what the audience and the critics don't see is all of the time spent, all of the, the falling in love with the material and the character and delving into that process. And yet we can do all of that and we can get a negative review. And I know you're not big into reviews and I'm not either. I don't like to read them particularly because I'm of the belief that you're never quite as good as they say you are and you're never quite as bad as they say you are. But how do you deal with the, uh, the critical review process, knowing that every single time, whether it be Woman on the Verge or War Paint or whatever it is, that you're giving your everything on the stage and yet you're not in a sense beholden to the critics, but they do have a sway over how people perceive what it is, the work that you do. Yeah, right. Well, first of all, to answer to what's found on that first question, mm -hmm. the audience, you know, you have to give a show at least a month, and that's after previews, even if you get bad reviews. You have to give the show a chance for word of mouth to take effect, and it's usually a month. And if you remember our audiences, mm end of our run remember how enthusiastic they were yeah yeah so you know if 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 producers take the time and have the money to let a show find its audience right reviews don't matter but it's because it's so much about money now that critics you know they've been the new york times has been keeping shows since um moon children michael wellis <laughs> <laughs> right and that is that you bring up a really good point is that especially now it's about money but there was a time when you could have a flop uh, as a writer or as a producer and you could just do a, another show right after that in terms of you know how things are now with it's all about money how have you seen the industry change from when you started when things weren't necessarily so much about money to now when they are more financially focused uh, well it's 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 what we're talking about shows it's difficult because shows would close overnight uh, mm -hmm. it depends i don't think we have um, producers that love theater mm -hmm. we have more producers that are interested in, in finding another Wicked, another Hamilton. Right. And that's difficult. It's difficult. Those things are once in a lifetime or twice in a lifetime. Uh, yeah. 
For sure. I, you know, I have invested in a couple of shows and some of the more successful people that I've spoken to producers who have had those successes say, look, you know, uh, before you go investing in a show, you might as well go to a casino because the odds are better, <laughs> you know? And it's just, it is crazy how now it is so financially driven and you can have like a thousand producers on one show, whereas in the past, it, it might not necessarily have been that way. But going back to women on the verge of a nervous breakdown, you taught me one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned in my career. And I love to tell the story. I think I told this at your birthday party a few years ago. We were having our first scene together in rehearsals in front of everyone in Women on the Verge. And I'm playing your son and I'm nervous because it was you. And I really worked hard on the scene. And we began and I start saying my lines and you responded. And then I thought about what you said, said my line, and then you immediately responded. And then I thought even more about what you said, and I responded. And long story short, you had this flamenco fan in your hand, and halfway through the scene, I hear the sound of the fan unfurling. And while you're fanning yourself, you give me, or you gave me this Blanche Dubois look, like you're a parent who's patiently waiting for me, her child, to learn how to tie his shoes. And at the end of the scene, you said to me something I will never forget. You said, Justin, you could drive a truck through this scene. And, <laughs> and right after you gave me my testicles back, you gave me a lesson I still carry with me to this day about timing and keeping the ball in the air. So my, my question out of all of that, <laughs> my question out of all of that is what is one of the greatest lessons you learned from one of the greats that you interacted with in your career? Jonathan Price taught mm -hmm. me basically the exact same thing that really? I must have said to you. Yes. He said, get to the end of the line. I said, what do you mean? He said, make your point. <laughs> I had no idea that I was dawdling in the middle of a sentence. But he taught me to, first of all, find the point in the sentence and then make it right. so that basically speeds up or puts urgency for a better, a better way to put it, puts urgency behind what you're saying. Right. And that was, I mean, and that's at you as a Vita. Ah, that's so amazing. And, and what I love is that, you know, you really, in terms of timing, like you helped me see that you never want the, to let the audience get ahead of you. Right. Right. Never. You're telling it kills. A, it kills the scene. It kills the momentum. And you're telling a story. A storyteller and a joke teller never allows an audience to get ahead of them. That's all we are, storytellers. Right. So keep them on the edge of their seat, but we can't be so... I mean, actors are so slow on stage, and you just go, why? Why are you so slow? Is it self-indulgence? Mm. Why are you so slow? You know, you, you have to keep the story. You have to, as you just said, fall in the air. Yeah. Yeah, I think when I first, when we first did that and, and I was in the scene with you, I really wanted to show that your words and the intentions behind what you were saying were having an effect on me. And I think that one of the things that I, I still carry with me is that there's acting on the line. And like you say, getting to the point, getting to the end of the line. And in essence, I think I said at one point, you know, I, through my experience with women on the verge of a nervous breakdown, I really learned that part of my job is to learn all the lines, but in essence, and I say this in quotes, forget them every single night so that I can rediscover what they mean in the moment. 
Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's just, it's just, it's living in it as opposed to putting uh, your spin on it, commenting on it, imposing on it. David Mamet says, let the script do the work. You have the fun. So if we just rely on the lines, what the words were supposed to say, it will do its job. We don't Absolutely. have to do it. Say the line. That's great. That's great. That's such a great quote too. Let the script do the work and you have the fun because at the end of the day, this is supposed to be fun, right? <laughs> so in my book, uh, Audition Secrets, I talk about my origin story. And that's the moment when my life was irrevocably altered by the moment I saw my first concert and my first Broadway show. What is your origin story? That moment when you knew that a life in the theater was what you wanted. I was four years old and I was tap dancing and I looked out at the audience and I fell in love with them because I thought they were all in love with me. That's <laughs> the truth. And I never looked back. I've never looked back. That's amazing. Four years old. You recognize that. Tap dancing. Yeah, yeah. Tap. tap dancing away. Um, and so speaking of tap dancing and, and doing that sort of uh, uh, work every single day, you started out just like everyone else, pounding the pavement and working your magic in the audition room. Do you have a vivid memory of an I audition? Didn't. Sorry? Actually, I didn't. I went to Juilliard and I handed a career. Wait, you weren't. I thought, wait, but, but even before Juilliard, you had to audition, correct? Uh not that I didn't audition. I was I, out of high school a year before I went to Juilliard. You were out of high school. Let me um, explain. Let me explain what that means. Right. Uh, you know, I went. I I I when I was a kid, I used to cut classes and go to uh, auditions in New York City in cattle calls. Uh, right. And and I have auditioned, no question. But when I say I was handed my career, I had spent four years in the drama division of the Juilliard School the found, uh, in the founding class of the drama division of the Juilliard School. Then John Hausman, who was the headmaster of the drama division, took our class and formed an acting company. Then I had four years on the road with the acting company. And I met David Mamet um, in our last year. And right after Juilliard, uh, I started acting in Mamet plays. And while, uh, no, excuse me, right after the, uh, the acting company, right after we left the acting company, I started acting in Mamet plays. And then Evita happened, but I was, I was forced to audition for that. I didn't want to audition for that. Mm. After that, there have been auditions, but not the same kind of pounding the pavement that most actors do because I was blessed with this, with John Hausman, basically giving us our, the beginning of our career. That's amazing. But you still had to go through the ups and downs of, not getting hired. Right, not getting hired. And so I guess the point of my question is because you know it's easy to point to the wonderful success and the longevity of your career, but what I want my listeners to see is that you know everybody started out in relatively the same place. Yes, you were cutting classes and going to cattle calls in New York and yes, a year out of high school you went to you you were the founding member of uh, uh one of the programs at Juilliard, the acting program at Juilliard and that troupe. However, do you have a vivid memory during any of those cattle calls or any of those times when you were struggling to be hired of like a horror story or a really funny crazy oh, yes. moment? Oh, no. Oh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> While I was at the acting company, I auditioned for Rex. Really? Uh, it was Richard Rogers' last 
musical. And mm-hmm. we were on hiatus. I think, you know, we just, we were home in New York City. And my agent set me up for Beck. And I remember walking into the theater from the backstage and onto the stage. And I listened to this woman sing. I was listening to her in the wings and she was unbelievable. Mm. Then it was my turn. And I walked on stage and the first thing I saw was the bald head of Richard Rogers. And then I gave the shittiest audition I think I've ever <laughs> Right, right for the man himself. Well, I, but and it was Ed Sharon who was directing, and Richard Rogers. Said, I said, I will never ever watch another audition again because I was blown out of the water wow. by I can't remember her name. Penny, I can't remember. I've seen her since. I don't know the woman, but I told her your audition, correct, was so amazing that when I followed you, I just blew <laughs> it totally. But it was, it was a. I was humiliated. You know what I mean? Because I'm, yeah. I'm not good in auditions in audition situations. Anyway, I don't think any of us are. We don't go in there going, oh, I got this nailed. It's right. terrifying. But this was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was the response that you got from, from uh, Richard Rogers as well as the director? Oh, less than nothing. <laughs> was it a next situation? Uh, it was... Uh, I. I think so. I think it was sort of. I remember Ed Sharon came down to the edge of the stage, and I don't remember what he said because I was terrified. <laughs> you know, I have so much fun talking to guests about their stories and the ups and downs of their careers, but I actually want to hear from you. And specifically, I would love to hear your audition horror story. You know we've all got them. I certainly do. A lot of the people that I talk to do, but I want to hear from you. So there's two easy ways for you to share your story, not only with me, but with all the other listeners. You can go to auditionsecrets.com, hit the button that says, ask me a question, and leave me a voice memo with your story. And I would love to play that on the air for everyone to hear. Or if you feel like you work better by clacking clacking things out, you can email me at justin at auditionsecrets.com. And I would love to read your story. I want to share in the joy, the laughter, the pain, the misery, and everything in between. We've all got those stories, and I want to hear yours and share it with all of my listeners. So go to auditionsecrets.com or email me at justin at auditionsecrets.com. You said that you were forced to audition for Evita. You didn't want to audition for it. You had been in the acting company. You had been in this amazing program in Juilliard. Why did you? Justin, why did you feel? I they, I wasn't forced into the audition. I didn't want to play the part. Really? There's a difference. Okay. I listened to the album. I hated the music. I did not want to audition for it. What I say was forced to, to audition. I didn't want to play the part. That's where it started. So why did you do it? Because I was told to by my boyfriend at the time, and Paul, Paul Gemignani, and I was told that I needed to audition, and I just followed their directions. But I heard the music, the concept album, and I really didn't like the music at all. When you when you, were, when you grew up on Julie Stein and Rogers and Hammerstein, yeah, that music was alien. Sure. And it was a rock opera. It was a, yeah. it was a, 
I didn't even call it an opera. I just thought, it was dissonant. I just thought the music was trash and I didn't want to, I was so not into it. <laughs> so not into it. You know, that's so interesting because that is one of the iconic roles that you're known for. And I found myself in the same exact situation. You know, I do a commercial on the air for Diet Dr. Pepper as this little ridiculous character. And I've been doing it for five years now. And I was the same way. I had just come off of nine months, a nine month tour uh, on Broadway uh, of Wicked. And my body was aching and my agent called me up and said, hey, we have this little thing. And I read the description and I was like, this is, this is stupid. I don't look anything like what they're asking me to do. Um, uh, you know, like this little rock God. I'm like, you know, when you think rock and roll, I, I, I'm, I'm like the last person you would think of when it comes to rock and roll. And so I was like, ugh. and they badgered me. They badgered me into going into that audition. And I went into the audition and I'm interested to see if you felt the same way. I went into that audition not giving a shit, like in the sense of like how we always give a shit when we walk into the audition and we're like uptight and we can make, you know, diamonds out of coal. Uh, I went in like, okay, I'm just going to play. I'm just going to do whatever. And it ended up being one of the best auditions of my life. So uh, backtracking to Evita, how did you walk into that room? You hate the concept album. You don't want to be doing it. Your boyfriend has basically badgered you into being there. You walk into the room. What, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? Exactly what you said. I think yeah. and it must be the key to getting a part. Not <laughs> giving shit. It probably is because you show more of yourself. You're yeah. not limited by fear. Yeah. Absolutely. I really think, and, and that is, it's, I don't want to say don't care, but there's a, a, there's an authenticity that comes from not caring when you just walk in the room and you're willing to, I don't even think it's willing to fail. I think you're just willing to just ugh, be your, completely and utterly yourself. And, uh, and so that certainly helped me and <laughs> it obviously helped you because you got yeah. the part. And so speaking of someone, uh, a character like Evita, you have always presented as a strong and powered woman in this business long before that natural way of being was widely accepted as a natural way of being. How has being a woman, especially being one as strong and unflinching as you are, how has being a woman in this business changed from when you started until now? And has it really changed? See, I... I don't know how I have this image of a, a strong, unflinching woman. I think it's probably because of the role of Evita. Mm. Because before that, I was with the acting company, and I was doing a variety of different roles, and none of them were strong, unflinching women. <laughs> mm -hmm. Duval in The Time of Your Life. There was Rosamond in The Robber Bridegroom. There was Irina Prozorov in in the three sisters, none of them are mm. strong, unflinching women. But I think in order to accomplish that role and what the role represented, I got a reputation as a strong, unflinching woman, which mm. is, it hasn't always, you know, served to my benefit. Um, mm -hmm. I have to say that I am outspoken, but that's who I've been my entire life. Exactly. As a child. Um, it's just I, I I see an injustice, or I'm I, I don't understand something. I ask the question, or I speak up. But that's always always been who I who I was as mm -hmm. a as a very young child, as a 
as a teenager, always getting in trouble for always asking the question. Mm. Um, has it changed? No. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. And I, I, and I, that's why I said, has it really changed? Because, you know, there's the Me Too movement. There's all these wonderful uh, awakenings that are happening in, in these sort of like general cultural, I don't want to say zeitgeist, but you know what I mean? Like just the, the, in, in our minds, but really at the essence, because when you started, you know, it, it, it was so vastly, we would like to think so vastly different, you know, it, it, in your estimation, it hasn't really at its heart being a woman in this business, the experience of being a woman in this business hasn't really changed. Well, I think that there's more women that are empowered. I think more women are, and I wish more women would, would, would do that, that they're not um, uh, cowed by men, that they're, mm. they're strong, that they're independent. I would like to see more female directors, more uh, directing, and more female uh, composers and playwrights getting mm-hmm. the right. But how we are treated by men, it's a long, it, it'll, it's a long way to go. It's a long way to go here. <laughs> of course, of course. Even though you have been labeled with that st- strong female ethos let's just say and that might not necessarily be who you are at your essence and in in all my interactions with you you know i have known you to yes answer the question and yes stand up for injustice but it's so funny when people say well what was it like working with patty i'm like oh my god she's the most lovely sweet wonderful person in the world and and i was just reading an article today uh, about an actor who uh, was doing scenes with you in Pose, and she said the same exact thing. Uh, I know you're filming this week in New York, so I'll have two more questions for you before we wrap it up. Um, James Corden, in his opening number for the Tonys, highlighted the fact that you know streaming platforms like Netflix as well as network shows are all the rage, but there'll never be anything that comes close to the live theatrical experience. In your estimation, why is theater so vital because it's live because it's live because it's sort of instant you know what i mean it's it's mm. a it, anything can happen because it's a dangerous place you know what i mean you go in there and you 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 want to suspend your disbelief and anything and that's there's a distance you know in television there's a distance between the screen and the actor you know the, the audience and the actor on mm. a, but it's but it's very intimate and dangerous when it's live. Yeah. That's what I, think. I think it's just electric. Oh, it's, th- it's absolutely thrilling. And, and that leads me to that kind of follow-up question of that. What is the most, and I don't want to say dangerous, maybe physically dangerous, but like what has been in your memory, one of the most dangerous moments on stage where you either completely went into the white room <laughs> or where you uh, messed something up and had to in that moment cover and continue telling the story um i i haven't had one but in the acting company when we were doing love's way was lost we had a doug schmidt set that looked like you know when you open up a fairy tale book mm-hmm. and was, um a scene will pop up mm-hmm. that was what the scenery looked like they were big flat and so it kind of looked like a fairy tale and the men from navarre were mm-hmm. standing and doing a scene and <laughs> They just happened to take two steps to the right Ooh. and took 20 foot flat, drop flat. It would have flattened the guy. It would have injured them. Wow. Um, I've never gone and I've never, we all just, <laughs> one of the actors went, 
trouble in Navarre. I mean, literally <laughs> flat, just, I don't know if it's down, but it just slammed to the, the deck and they would wow. have been, they would have been injured badly, but yeah. that, that hasn't happened to me. Or if it has, I haven't thought it was dangerous, but exciting. Have you I ever had a moment where you completely went up on stage? Yes. Oh, Tell me God. about it. Yeah, have you? Oh yes, absolutely, oh. absolutely. Well, tell me about tell me about your experience. I can't remember, you know, exactly what it was. I I was eighteen years old, and I was playing eight and all my sons, and I left the stage, and I went to uh, Mars. I I, I I blacked out. I have. <laughs> it, it's just it, it's the scariest thing. You leave your body. I'm trying to think where else I I, I forgot a line. Um, I'm trying to remember because uh, it's generally in plays because musicals go by too fast. You know what I mean? If you sure, and musicals you can hide behind the music, or so, there are places where you might be able to hide, but a play you have nowhere to go. Yeah, nowhere to go. I'm trying to. Think. It's, just, it's frightening. It's it's it's, it's <laughs> and then you 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 can't stop talking about it, right? Right. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I can't believe I just drive. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's also kind of thrilling because I love those moments a, because it kind of shows you what you're really made of and B because when you get through them and inevitably every actor, I mean, the, a lot of the people that I, a lot of my students, a lot of people that I work with haven't quite made it to Broadway yet and are terrified of those sort of moments happening. And I say, look, you know, this is, this is normal. I could be doing a show for, I've done shows for like six, seven months. And then all of a sudden for no apparent reason, I cannot think of what it is I'm supposed to say or where I'm supposed to go. I enter the white room and fortunately I have these people around me who vaguely know what it is that I'm supposed to say and that help me out. But yeah, it's this terrifying moment that happens at any and every level of your career. Okay. So I have one last question for you. If there was a piece of advice or wisdom that you could go back and give your younger working actor pre-star self, what would it be? To pay more attention, study harder, mm. discipline. I mean, as far as craft is concerned, right. um, that's, I think, this, this is what I do. You know what I mean? This is, this is what I do, and I wish I was smarter. Interesting. How it. do you think being smarter and studying the craft would have maybe altered your trajectory? Because you've had a pretty amazing career, but how do you think it would have, do you think it would have made it better, faster, easier? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I just, just wish that, that I, I had uh, understood technique vocally and in uh, acting terms sooner. I mean, it takes me a long time to learn. Mm. And I just wish that I, I wasn't such a dolt. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you're one of the most amazing dolts in the entertainment business. So <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> no. Well, thank you so very much. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, oh, thank time. you, Justin. It's so good to hear your voice. It's great to hear your voice too. And I hope you have a wonderful uh, rest of the filming and your time in New York City and touring around with your show. All right. Thanks, Justin. I wish no you the problem. best always. Thank you, dear. This is an awesome way to start off my podcast. So thank you. I, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time. Okay. Thank you for asking me. Always.
All right, Delphate. Love you. All right. I love you too, dear. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye. Okay, so I want to take a brief moment to answer a question that Kevin has. Kevin asks, my one question about auditioning is, what advice would you give to overcoming nerves, for overcoming nerves, and thinking the character's thoughts while performing versus thinking your own thoughts, like what the people in the room are thinking about the performance? Well, that's two questions, Kevin, and I'll answer both. Okay, first one, about overcoming nerves nerves. You know, there's so much advice out there about overcoming nerves, and a lot of it's good, some of it's just junk, but I want to kind of get behind that question a little bit and start by really getting at the thoughts that lead to a question and the beliefs that lead to a question like, ah, why am I so nervous, or, or the feelings of nerves. And Really what it boils down to at the end of the day is whether or not you believe that you're enough. I mean, that's simple. And I mean, it's like, oh, let's make a bumper sticker. I'm enough and and I'm never going to be nervous before auditions. No, that's obviously not true. But the way you start to approach the audition before you step into the casting room, before you step into the audition room will greatly determine whether or not you are regular nervous or nervous to the point where you can't function anymore. And so one of the greatest things that I do to overcome any nerves that I have that go beyond just the normal, I care, I want to be good, this is an intense situation nerves, is I ask myself better questions. Because the questions that lead me to being nervous are often like, what if I'm not enough? What if I don't get this job? Then what am I going to do after that? What if the people on the other side of the table don't like me? What if I don't stack up to the people who I'm sitting next to in the casting room waiting? All of those things are just like, I mean, a pile of crap that you put on yourself. And then you walk into the audition room with this big, pile of crap on top of you, and you wonder why you fall apart, why you get so nervous, why things don't go well. But what would happen if you asked yourself, you know, what would what would happen if I was enough? What would happen if the work that I was doing in here was unique, I brought my own perspective to it, and what would happen if there was no competition? Not that, not that there's no competition, obviously you're competing, but if you bring your unique interpretation of the character, of the role, into the room, then there is no competition. No one else has lived your life, has experienced your experiences, and no one, therefore, can deliver the kind of performance that you can deliver. And then on top of that, you know, when it comes to what's going to happen next, what's going to happen, well, if you start to do what David Mamet said, and just let the script do the work and have fun. And this, this leads me into the second part of your question, which was, you know, how do you think the character's thoughts while performing versus thinking your own thoughts? That is an actor trap. That is one of the traps that so many of us have fallen into, are still into, trying to dig our ways out. And what I say to that is, no, 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 it's not about thinking the character's thoughts. Because as performers, as actors, if we align ourselves with the vibration of the character, we then become the instrument through which the character plays. 
I'm going to say that again. If we align ourselves with the vibration of the character, we become the instrument through which the character plays. And again, that sounds all great, but really in simpler terms, it's like instead of thinking of ourselves playing a character, like we have to put on the mask or put on some sort of skin suit that's not our own, attempt to find the bits and pieces and thoughts and ideas of the character and experience of the character that resonate with your own ideas, your own thoughts. Now, for example, if I was playing the demon barber of Fleet Street, now I'm not going to go out and murder somebody, and I pray to God that I never, ever have to experience, whether it's justified or not, uh, that experience. However, I know the feelings of rage, of anger, of feeling like, oh, I've got a secret and I got away with something. I've experienced that in my life. I also know shame. I know regret. I know the, the, the sort of weight of holding on to a secret or something that if I told people that maybe I would get in a bunch of trouble over. And so when I begin to approach the barber of demon, I'm sorry, the demon barber of Fleet Street. That way, I then begin to align my experiences with his, and I can start to not, you know, fit his skin on me or put the mask on me, but I can start to just delve into my own experiences of the feelings and the thoughts and the other experiences that he's had, and I allow the script to do the work. And I just have fun because I can stand in a room and I can tell the people on the other side of the table my deepest, darkest, most horrible secret without telling them a single thing from my life. I can use the demon barber's experience and words and the music to tell my own story. And when you come from it at that perspective, from that perspective, oh, it's liberating because you don't have to play pretend or to act. You just allow the script to do the work on you and you become the vessel, the instrument through which the script plays because it is playing through your own experience, through your own unique lens, your own unique view of the world. Now, we could go on and on and on and on and on about that. And, and down the line, there's going to be opportunities for us to talk about that. But that was a really, really great question. And in the six minutes or so that I had, or seven minutes or so that I had here, I hope that I answered it. And if you would like to ask me a question, it's really simple. All you have to do is go to auditionsecrets.com and hit ask me a question and you can leave me a voice memo and I will play it live here on the air for everyone to hear. And if you don't want to leave a voice memo, no problem. You can email me at justin at auditionsecrets.com. I listen to the voice memos. I read the emails personally, and I would love to hear from you and serve you and answer as many questions as I can. So I can't wait to hear from you. Well, that does it for today's show. Thank you so very much for tuning in and making it all the way to the end of Audition Secrets. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, thank you, thank you to the, my love, my showbiz mama, the living legend, Patty Lapone, for taking the time to sit down with me. I love you, I love you, I love you, mama. Thank you so very much. And thank you 
for your question, Kevin. And I cannot wait. Next episode, we have the absolutely lovely and talented and all around awesome woman, Laura Osnes, on the episode. We get to sit down, we get to talk, and we get to uh, get behind that nice, joyous, shiny facade and see what really ticks Laura Osnes off. I had to ask her this question because she is just the picture, and she really truly is the picture of sweetness and light. So we get behind there and see what really ruffles her feathers. It's a great, great interview, and I can't wait for you to hear it. If you haven't subscribed to the show, please do. We want to spread this message far and wide. We are trying to get audition secrets out there so that more people can nail more auditions and book more jobs, and we need your help to do it. So please subscribe. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review. Leave some comments. Uh, We really, really appreciate you listening and supporting the show. I am Justin Bell Guarini. This has been Audition Secrets. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, you're only one audition away. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.